is Let's Review, a bi-weekly podcast about current events, culture, politics, and what's on our minds this week. I'm Kim Springer. And I'm Jen White. Today we're talking about a question that was brought to us by one of our listeners. Ben Galicki had a question about Black leads on television. So he'd heard our podcast about Black representation in Hollywood movies, and he raised a question about his current favorite TV shows. You know, personally, I watch... A lot of shows on network TV with strong black leads, either male or female, and even my mother watches other shows, including How to Get Away with Murder, Blackish, Empire, and Scandal. And I was curious on how the dynamic has shifted more in TV than compared to in movies, or what audiences these type of shows are trying to draw. We thought this was an excellent question with lots of series winding down for the season. And also, upfronts are coming up in May, which is when networks sell advertising based on pilots for the next season. So that's right around the corner. So to get a little context, we have Robin Means Coleman. Dr. Coleman is Associate Professor of Communication Studies at the University of Michigan. And we wanted to have you talk with us about this topic because your research has this incredible breadth across film and television. So we were wondering if you could give us some historical context for what we're seeing in TV right now. Sure. I think it is an exciting time in television um, around the the sort of robust representation of especially black characters on the screen. So when people are saying that it feels like there are more faces, I think in some ways they're right. Where um, folks like me who look at the history of television can come in and help uh, people to understand what's happening in this representational period is to say we see a lot of representations now because there's this sort of cyclical nature Um, around the inclusion of blacks in television. And so we are coming off of a period where there were fewer representations. And now we're seeing increased representations. And so people are like, whoa, there are a lot of faces. Mm -hmm. So you're absolutely right. We can go back as early as the 50s with Beulah and Mm -hmm. Amos and Andy. Mm -hmm. And that was really the moment when television introduced audiences to black characters. Donnie's been stood up. Well, man, he's going to break his heart, isn't he? Well, Miss Alpha will be upset because she wanted Donnie to make a hit socially. And I'll be upset because I've been spending all my spare time teaching Donnie to dance. You does not love me. I do, too. You does not. Andy Brown, you tell me one more time that I don't love you, and I'm going to take my fist and pound your head right through that brick wall. Of course, those two shows weren't without controversy. The NAACP protested them. Um seeking to have them taken off the air. And in some ways, that protest was a a bit successful. Ratings plummeted for both of those series. There were some other factors behind the scenes, like they were really expensive to produce. But eventually, they were taken off the air and sort of enshrouded in controversy. When Amos and Andy and Beulah leave the air, there is just about a 15-year period where you see really no black faces in starring roles on television until we get to Julia in the late 60s. Well, darling, Santa Claus is really the spirit of Christmas giving. He, uh, he can be any color. He can be black, white, or red, or yellow, to each his own. So that's the first moment where we see this cycle of presence, then absence, then presence. Julia opens up the door again for presence, and then we start to see sort of back-to-back. Then Julia, and then those kind of Lear, Norman Lear Mm -hmm. shows, Sanford and Son, Good Times, The Jeffersons. Then we see a kind of a plummet again. 
certainly in the 80s, fewer black shows, and we're really talking about comedies here, Mm -hmm. not so much dramas. Um, Blacks dominate in the genre of sitcoms. And so you see a disappearance. And again, organizations like the NAACP step in and they're saying, we we need to boycott and we need to send the industry a message about improved representations around quantity and quality. Um, The 90s are a big boom again, and you have just dozens of shows that some you may have even forgotten about. Um, Everything from, um, so Gladys Knight had a show, Red Fox had a show, um, Melba Moore had a show, Gregory Hines had a show. You're right, I forgot. Right, you know, (laughs) there was the Thea show, there was Sparks, um, Terrence Howard and Robin Givens had a show. All of that happened, and then, whoosh, we were gone again. So we're back in this moment of presence. What feels great about this moment is that it's not sitcoms. They're dramas. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's what people are reacting to. Is there any similarity in the boom and bust cycle? Are there social or political forces that are maybe pushing this, you know, increased representation on television and then pulling it back? I think you're really onto something. That's a great question. Um, there are a number of researchers who've been trying to figure this out. Another is Darnell Hunt, who's at um, UCLA. And one of the things that um, I think that we've stumbled on, at least the thesis I've been advancing, is we can point to the upstart networks. I'm, I'm a bit of a historian. So UPN, WB, um, CW, When you have networks that are looking to get programming going, they turn to black programming, not just to attract black audiences, but to attract the younger demographic, mostly young white men, um, teens, boys. So they'll do kind of sort of what we call sort of hip hop programming Mm -hmm. to invite them in. Once they build that up, they typically abandon black programming and move to something else. That's really interesting. So they use hip hop or black audiences to bring in the younger people. And then once they have the younger people, they abandon the race focus. That's right. Okay. That's nice to know. (laughs) (laughs) But some of these boom and bust cycles happened before hip hop was on the scene. So what was the factor that was pushing that representation then? Sure. Great. Another great question. Um, I love this. Um, (laughs) When you look at um, the demise or the the sort of um, disappearance of Amos and Andy, what you see the networks do between Amos and Andy and Beulah and then Julia, you will see this period around the rise of the civil rights movement. And so television said, we understand how to represent black folks as a, in a particular way, which was, if you know the history of Amos and Andy and Beulah, well, it was those programs were lifted straight from minstrel theater. It was theater to radio. So we saw kind of a black voice, black face kind of caricature kind of dumped into television. Well, you can't have that kind of representation during the rise of the civil rights movement when we're talking mid-50s through the 60s when you, you have um, – sort of as it's always sort of represented in popular culture, kind of a Malcolm X versus a Martin Mm -hmm. Luther King representation. Well, you can't have Amos and Andy on the air. Rather than try to figure out how to do more quality programming that represents blacks, um, the networks just said, we're just going to opt out and not represent them at all. So that is a period of invisibility where rather than try to be innovative, they said, well, we can't imagine what black people will look like on television. So we're just going to take them off the air. 
Hmm. And is that where film steps in with black exploitation films? Indeed. Okay. Absolutely. So one thing we were wondering about was um, whether these shifts and cycles result in tokenism. And we were thinking about Saturday Night Live, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, where they'll have add maybe one or two new black characters mm-hmm. and then they have to play all of the characters yeah. of a certain race. Yeah. Um, this is interesting, and I, I forgive me that I cannot remember. I met a, a scholar at um, Arizona State University who introduced we, – we asked this very question at a conference, and he raised his hand, and he said, you know, what I think I'm seeing is multi-tokenism. So that is um, – the Saturday Night Live example is a good one where you have one person, in this case, um, Keenan, who was playing black men, black women, just every black character – Linked to that, you will also see on shows like, say, Grey's Anatomy, where you have sort of one of each racial representation. And so there's tokenism and then there's also multi-tokenism that we're seeing on television where the industry is saying we're going to deal with diversity either through a single inclusion or we're going to just sort of have one of each, the kind of Baskin-Robbins approach. Mm -hmm. Both of those seem to be unsatisfying solutions for in the way that we should proceed in diversifying um, our programming. One of the things you mentioned was the difference in representation on comedies as opposed to dramas. Why is that distinction so important? In the case of black representations, we've really been confined to sitcoms. One of the things that Marla Gibbs, who was on the Jeffersons in 227, famously said was she felt so confined by the comedy genre. And she said, we can sing, we can dance. That's all that we're expected to do in entertainment. But there's so much more that we can reach for, right? Uh, so what's exciting, I mean, think about it. It's 2014 and we're getting excited that there's more than one drama on television that represents black life and culture. That's shocking to, to think about. Why now is a great question. And certainly it has something to do with the Obamas being in the White House, I think. But do you think that we are being a bit dazzled by quantity over quality in terms of the characters we're seeing? I think so. Um, Although I'm a big fan of television, and so I've been tracking some of the um, pushback against dramatic shows like Empire. Um, I actually really like Empire, and but I also was a fan of Dynasty. So, and I think that they're absolutely the same show. And people are sort of talking about that Empire does a bit of the King Lear um, Uh backstory and all of that. You know, I think that the one key solution here is that we have lots of shows so that we're not pointing to single shows. We ha- that happened with the Cosby show where the Cosby show had to carry the weight of all of blackness until a different world came on and then we were we were able to have a more complex conversation about the lessons and messages these shows are sending up um about about black life and culture. So I'm sure you're aware of this recent article in Deadline that seemed to criticize the increase in the casting of actors of color. They've since apologized for that article, but what is this about? Um that's that the, you know that's an interesting sort of Um, I hate this language, but it's an interesting sort of liberal reverse racism in this case. What you have is really about three shows. Um, Four, perhaps there's Being Mary Jane, Empire, um, Power, How to Get Away with Murder, which is very, a very diverse cast, Mm -hmm. right? Scandal is a very diverse cast. That you can name these shows on one hand. 
really, you know, I sort of want to say, I assure you that this is not representing a threat to white dominance of, of television right now. But what we but that also points back to the cyclical nature that it seems like it's such a surge after such um, so many years of absence and neglect for black representations. So do you think it matters who's telling the story? I do. Um, to a degree, um, I think that the first impulse is to point to and say that we need to have um, black writers, um, that we need to have black writers in the room to tell black stories. Uh, I think we need to have a diversity of voices with a diversity of experiences in the room to tell black stories. It it isn't always the case that um, having a black writer is the absolute solution. What we want are really smart even if it's sort of slapstick comedy, we need to have really smart people in the room telling stories, reducing stories for any group to just sort of predictable cliches, the things that we've seen again and again, the rehashing. We don't want that for anybody, and we certainly can't afford it for black representations. So if we historically have seen representation move in this boom and bust cycle, does that mean we're headed for another bust? <laughs> I think we might be headed for another bust. I hate to say that, but I actually think, you know, probably with coming up with the election um, when Obama rotates out of the White House, I think we might see a bit of a bust. It will be a, a life cycle for this group of shows that they will start to be moving off the air. And I think the industry will fill in with something I, I don't know what, but I don't think it'll be filling in, replacing these shows with still more um, powers and empires and scandals. I, I just don't predict that right now. Do you think we might have just one more good season with Upfronts coming up in May and Obama being in the office for just I a do. little while longer? Okay, I absolutely good. do. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. I, think, I think we have, you know, I think we might have a good two or three years and then we're going to see a bit of a slump. And then it'll come back again. It always does. Your relief was palpable, Kimberly. <laughs> I love television. <laughs> so, Robin, we like to give our listeners resources or materials for their review. So will you share with us a TV program you think is getting it right at the moment or something you have high hopes for that people should look out for? Okay. I, I <laughs> Actually, I hope, you know, when you, you – put this together that the listeners will hear the long pause that it took me a while to think about this. But I I think I am going to stick with my empire answer. Uh, And there are a couple of reasons why I so and this is also contrasting it with power. And people seem to be inclined to look at these two shows um, together. And there are a couple of things that empire has to do because it's on network television that power doesn't have to do, Mm -hmm. which sort of makes empire a better show in my Mm -hmm. mind. And that is because power is on cable, it it permits a lot more of um, longer um, sex scenes. So they're and they're sort of they're just they're just sort of like Skinamax. They're just Mm. skirting the edge of something that's a little bit really racy and almost pornographic. And so uh, power, because they are on cable, has the luxury of of doing these longer sex scenes. Empire can't do that. Empire has to fill in the space with actual story. 
Mm -hmm. Um, And so they're pushing the script along. Sometimes the script is a little bit um, disorganized and you're sort of like, wait, where are we now in this, you know, in space and time? But Empire has to work harder on their story. And it's a dramatic story. It's melodramatic. It's almost telenovela in its impulses. But I think that's fun. And I think it's interesting. And I'm completely hooked um, on Empire. So get it right in quotes. Um, I think it is fun television. We want to thank Dr. Coleman for coming in and joining us on Let's Review. Again, she's Associate Professor of Communication Studies at the University of Michigan, and we look forward to hearing more from you in the future. Thank you. Where's your family from? Jerusalem. I was adopted by Jewish parents. That's cool. We both eat Chinese food on Christmas, and our parents are super pushy. I know more than you could possibly imagine about things of which you cannot dream. He told you that you would be first lady and you believed him. You can never go back. And that's what happens when you lose your virginity. You can never go back. Never forget that, Jane. I just got out. Good behavior. All right, so what you going to do now? I'm here to get what's mine. It's one thing to have a feeling that times are changing, but isn't it better to have actual evidence? I love evidence. (laughs) It keeps people on their toes. So we wanted to invite Dr. Darnell Hunt to share some highlights from his annual Hollywood Diversity Report. He and Dr. Ana Cristina Ramon wrote the report as part of their work with the Ralph J. Bunch Center based at UCLA. Well, two pieces of data that your report had that stood out to me. Um, The first one was that TV networks and studio heads were 96% white. And yeah. 55% male. And you also said that TV unit heads were 86% white and 55% male, which, you know, intuitively, I suspected as much. But then I read that and I thought, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah, well, that's, that's a huge part of the problem. Um, we have an industry that has traditionally been dominated by white men. Um, it's a very lucrative industry. People make an enormous amount of money. I think people would be shocked if they knew how much money people make in this industry. And so the people who are in these positions, um, you know, are not very um, sort of keen on giving up that privileged position. Um, they're trying to do from their vantage point what they think will increase their odds for success, because after all, most new TV shows fail and most movies underperform. It's a highly risky industry. So people uh, surround themselves with people that they've worked with before, people who um, think like them, um, people they're comfortable with, and guess what, people who tend to look like them, other white men for the most part, which makes it really, really hard for minorities and women to kind of break into what is essentially an exclusive club. You know, one of the things your report talks about is this idea of gatekeeping, because when People are trying to get hired for shows. You know, you've got to go through an agency. You have to go through the audition process. And you say there are three dominant talent agencies that are really the gatekeepers. How does that work and what does it mean for actors and and creators of color? Well, the way the industry works, um, it's almost like um, a farm system in sports, you know, where you have these lower tier teams that kind of almost audition and um, certify talent. So what the talent agencies do is they provide for the networks and studios packaged products. They already on their rosters have A-list actors. They have 
major directors, they have major writers, they may own the rights to a book that becomes the source material for a movie. And what they do as agents is bring all the ingredients together into a very seductive product that can be sold to a network or to a studio. And they're doing a lot of the work, a lot of the advanced work for the studios and networks who then say, yes, we want to buy this product and we'll put it on the air and you get your commission and, of course, the talent gets paid. So that's what talent agencies do. Now, the problem is talent agencies, as you might imagine, um, if you look at their rosters, they aren't very diverse. And so we tend to see the same um, A-list actors, directors, producers over and over again as part of these packaged products. And if you don't have people of color and women who are sort of adequately represented on these rosters, again, they're kind of shut out. One of the points of analysis you make is is that racial and gender stereotypes were present but muted. What does that mean? What we found was that, quote-unquote, diverse shows didn't have as many stereotypes in them as, um, you know, often critics of mainstream media say exist in TV programming. That is to say there were instances where we found a stereotype here or there, but overall the shows were quite progressive and, and, and tried to do a decent job of accurately and fairly and in a balanced way portraying, you know, a range of different experiences within different groups. So do you think that's down to the writers? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that has a big, um, big, uh, uh, a lot to do with it. I mean, one of the things we know for sure is that diverse shows, I mean, there's a relationship between what happens behind the scenes and what, what happens on, on camera. And in fact, um, one of the takeaways from our study is that, of course, diversity sells, more diverse shows um, tend to, on average, do better in terms of ratings. And we also found that shows with writing rooms that were more diverse, on average, also did better in terms of ratings. I mean, you know, we live in a society that's almost 40% minority, and it's becoming more minority every day. People want to see their experiences. Um, they want to see characters on the screen that resonate with their experiences. And, you know, it stands to reason that if you have diverse perspectives and voices in the writing room, you're probably going to generate characters that are more nuanced and more that feel more real, and, and they're going to be more attractive to a diverse audience. Why do you think we get stuck or caught up on representation on the screen if behind the scenes that's where the real change happens? Well, I think most people don't understand what they can't see behind the scenes. So your average viewer at home um, probably has no idea kind of what the sort of the, the practices are underlying the creation of that TV show or that movie. They, you know, they may see a credit and say, okay, I, I may know the director, or I, mean, I think everybody by now knows who Shonda Rhimes is, but beyond that, you know, you don't, probably don't know much about what happens in Shonda Rhimes' writing rooms. So, um, so it's, it's sort of like the great um, invisible part of the process, the black box that most people don't know about, and so therefore they don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. Instead, what's very visible and in your face is what you see on the screen. So now, of course, this season, the 2014-15 season, everyone's celebrating all the diversity we see in front of the camera. And in most cases, particularly for the shows like How to Get Away with Murder and Empire, which has been phenomenal in terms of its rating success, um, there is quite a bit of diversity behind the scenes in those shows as well, which is somewhat unusual for television. So I think, um, I think it's easier to talk about the rep- representation and much harder to talk about behind the scenes, particularly when we don't have the data. And that's one of the reasons we do the study, because now we have comprehensive data, not just based on anecdote, looking at the entire industry so we can kind of flesh out the patterns that seem to produce 
um, certain types of outcomes on the screen. We had a question about um, cable and digital platforms and whether those provide an easier portal for people of color to enter the business than network TV. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's, a great, that's a great question. You would think, you know, that they would be more diverse. In fact, what we found was that they look kind of similar to old media, to, to broadcast um, media. And so you have this new technological development and the people who are trying to get a stakehold in the audience, that is to say to attract audience members, are kind of reverting back to the same old practices that old media were using. That is to say the same old names, for the most part, are being recycled um, as the people who are allowed to create shows, to run shows, and to package products. Uh, now, Anissa Ray, who you know, came to, I, I guess, her fame from her you know, misadventures of Opera Black Girl on the Internet, that's a different story. Um, one of the things we talk about in our project is kind of the, um, the impact of web series and independently produced content um, on what the major networks and studios are doing. I mean, at some point, you know, the major studios and networks are going to have to wake up and realize that the market is changing and that to the degree that they're not serving that market, people are going to go elsewhere, like to web series and other alternative um, um, providers of content. So, Darnell, we started this podcast with a question from one of our listeners about what he's seeing on television, and he has this perception that there's been this huge boost in minority representation on television because of shows like Empire and How to Get Away with Murder and Being Mary Jane. So when you project ahead, do you think the needle's going to shift in your next report, or is it window dressing? You know, that's, that's a great question. And, um, I mean, I can speculate, of course, because I don't have the data yet. I mean, I suspect that we may see a spike. In the same way that in 2013 we saw a spike in um, diversity in film, because a number of people referred to 2013 as the uh, year of the breakout black film. I mean, that was the year, of course, we had Fruitvale Station, we had uh, 12 Years a Slave, The Butler, etc. Now, whether that's going to be an aberrant year, and, and in 2014 we find that, well, the numbers went back to business as usual, um, we'll know in about six months or so. I guess the real question is, is this the beginning of a new trend? that will continue or will we go back to business as usual in a year or two? And that's why we do this report every year, because we want to be able to track over time whether we're actually making progress, whether we're just kind of going back and forth, or whether we're treading water. I love it. Watching the watchers. That's how I think of it. Um, We've only scratched the surface of your findings, but we'll post a link to the full report on our website. I want to thank Dr. Darnell Hunt for joining us. He is with the Ralph J. Bunch Center, which is based at UCLA, and he is the co-author of an annual Hollywood diversity report. Thanks so much for being here. Great to be here. So this is the part of the podcast where we give you suggestions for your review. I'm going to recommend watching Sleepy Hollow, which on Black Twitter is hashtag Sleepy Hollow. Hollow. And Ichabod Crane has been in some sort of witch-induced deep freeze, and now he's back fighting crime with Detective Abigail Mills. So they have some amazingly funny conversations, and they're really insightful about things like democracy and contemporary consumerism and also technology. And I also like that sometimes I need a dictionary to figure out <laughs> what colonial language he's using. So there are two seasons to catch up on this summer, and it will be back in the fall. I will recommend a book by my co-host, Kimberly Springer. She oh, co-edited you know. 
called Stories of O. And it's a book that looks at Oprah Winfrey's impact on modern culture. And considering the fact that the sister now has her own television channel with its own batch of TV shows, I think it's incredibly relevant. You can find it on Amazon.com. Again, it's called Stories of O. That's our review session. If you go to our website, medium.com slash let's review, you'll find show notes. And these include our recommendations for your review. And if you want to get in touch, email us at letusreviewpodcast at gmail.com. And please tell your friends you listen to Let's Review. You can find us in a bunch of places, our website, iTunes, and Stitcher. Our producer is Mark Brush, and we had production assistance today from Peg Watson. And our theme music is Creative Commons and courtesy of Eladla. Thanks for joining us for this Let's Review. I'm Kim Springer with a splash of Walona Woods. And I'm Jen White with just a little bit of Dee Thomas.